This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I want to enjoy my child, but I'm hypervigilant looking for any symptoms. That means he's going to need support as well. I would get Hunter out of bed at four or five in the morning, give him a sleep, a dream feed, go up to the city, pump three times a day, pump overnight, work another day and then come home. Looking back, I'm like, wow, how did I do that? I had taken up a part-time job waitressing because it was the only role that I could find that I could work around my husband's shifts and around my kids' needs. I'm only here for one life, for one experience. It is going to be full on and, and I may as well embrace that. The amazing thing was though that once we started to work with Orbit, Jackson never ever tried to run away. It's not always going to be this way, it's not always going to be this hard and that you're never alone. The Autism Collective founder and mother of two, Anna Commons, has had a life of incredible experiences and serious growth. Her older son, Jackson, has nonverbal autism and her career has taken many shapes and forms. It began in marketing, then somewhere in the middle she waited tables. And now she's a motherhood mentor and coach who also works with families navigating the NDIS. In this episode, Anna shares her journey from Jackson's diagnosis to what autism means in his day-to-day life. And we also talk about the importance of charging what you're worth, why overgiving leads to resentment, and how she created work that feeds her passions as well as her family. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not, and here is the powerful and pragmatic Anna Commons. Anna, thank you so much for being here. Firstly, could you start off by introducing yourself and your family? Yes, thank you so much for having me here. Um, So my name's Anna. I am a 43-year-old mum now, just had my birthday last month, and I've been living on the peninsula for um, nearly 10 years. My beautiful husband brought me to this part of the world because we met when we were living overseas. I have two little boys. One is nine and one is seven. My eldest is Jackson. He's delightful and challenging. He has a diagnosis of ASD. And my youngest is seven-year-old Hunter, who is the complete opposite. I've been gifted with (laughs) a dichotomy of children. And we also have a fur baby. His name's Orbit and he's Jackson's assistance dog. So he's been with us um, six years, nearly six years now. Beautiful. And so you founded the Autism Collective six years ago. But before we get into that, what came before that career-wise for you? So we used to live in the city, you know, we lived on Ligon Street, we lived the life, we went out to the bars and the restaurants and the freedom and the travel and all those things. And I was working for a hotel group for about 10 years before I finished up there in marketing. So I used to work for franchisees who would buy hotels and renovate them and then build up the occupancy and then sell them for profit. So I worked on Lonsdale Street and in an office and it was very corporate world, complete opposite to now. Wow, that's an interesting trajectory. I can't wait to hear about how Autism Collective came to be. But before we get to that, when did talks of starting a family come about for you? And was it something that stressed you out career-wise or was it quite a natural progression? Very early on, we spoke about 
children like we met when we were traveling Europe and you know free living the free life so it seemed like this far off thing and career because we were traveling career wasn't a big focus for us until we came back and then we sort of like okay now we have to live real life you know we were in our early 20s and then that's when I started to get more interested in like how do I want to build a career because I started out being a hairdresser when I was at, uh, 16 I did an apprenticeship and coming back from travel I thought I want to work in travel I want to be able to get paid to travel so I studied hospitality and I ended up working in hotel marketing so I yeah became very focused on my career you know as you do when you don't have children it's like you have that one thing in your life that's your that's your baby that has all your love and your energy um and I had a very naive I guess idea of what motherhood was going to be and I was 33 when my first child was born. So I'd had a lot of time to, you know, live my life very selfishly. So I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I thought, I'll oh, just be one of those mums that, you know, goes back to work after 12 months and my life will be normal. I'll just have kids there too. <laughs> so the universe was going, oh, you'll see. <laughs> had other plans for you, beautiful plans, but challenging plans nonetheless. So you then do fall pregnant with your first son, Jackson. How did pregnancy go for you while you're working this busy job? It was like a dream. It was, I had the easiest, most uncomplicated, healthy pregnancy. Didn't even really, I had two weeks of morning sickness and that was it. So then Jackson does arrive into the world. Can you tell us about those few months, those first few months of motherhood and of maternity leave? Yeah, wow. It was like a blur. <laughs> and we decided that we didn't want to live in a city with kids. So we wanted to move down to the peninsula where we live now. And so we bought a house and renovated it throughout my pregnancy and we moved in when Jackson was um, three days old. So we, <laughs> he was born up in the city and then we moved out of... So, so this we, is a good we, time to move. Uh, you, know, they, you know when they do that um, the assessment for postnatal depression, they ask you those particular questions and one of them is like, have you moved house lately? Because it's <laughs> such a massive stressor. So I was like, yes, I've left my job. I've had a baby. I've moved house. I've renovated mm -hmm. it. I'm really asking for it all right now. Um, <laughs> so we were in a new area where I didn't really know anyone. We were in a new house. We were still sort of finishing off renovations. And it was like, oh, here's a baby that doesn't sleep. So, you mm -hmm. know, I I still remember maybe it was like this first or second night at home and I put him down to bed and then two hours he, you know, woke up again. And I remember it really sunk in like, oh, my God, this isn't like a job. This doesn't stop at the end of the day, it goes on and on all night. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, you know, and it was a huge shock for me to move into this world of you do not get a break. You do not get time off. You do not get to have any control over how this is going to mm -hmm. play out. And so we went to sleep school. I'm, if you can't see me, I'm making quotation marks here. <laughs> Because by 10 weeks, and his sleep was pretty poor, even by, you know, 10 week old standards, and we didn't know that he had a disability back then. But by 10 weeks, I was just a mess. I was so chronically sleep deprived. And my husband was back at work, and he's a firefighter and shift work and all that. So um, I remember the first night at sleep school, my breasts were almost exploding because I had more than six hours of sleep, you know, which oh. was like unheard of. So it was a real shock to go from 
33 years of, you know, I can control everything to like, whoa, here's a child. He's not going to do anything you want him to do and he's all your responsibility. So good luck with that. And I love the paradox of you get a good night's sleep and then your boobs kill. Like we don't Mm. get much winning, unfortunately, in early (laughs) motherhood. It's not very fair. So what did maternity leave look like for you? How long did you take off and how was the return to work for you? So it was challenging to go back to work because I now didn't live in the city anymore. So not only was I going back to work, but I was also commuting, you know, an hour plus each way. But my employers were great in that they were very flexible. So I would work two days from home and one day in the office, for example, um, which gave me a lot of flexibility. And it meant that I didn't need to have my son in childcare quite a lot because my husband was home, you know, sometimes if he was on a night shift, he'd be home during the day. So that was really flexible. And I sort of remember thinking, you know, it's going to work out pretty well. As a child, I I never went to childcare. You know, I went to kindy when I was three or four. And I sort of grew up with that generation that it wasn't assumed that you were going to be put into childcare from, you know, 12 months old or six months old or, or whatever age, which is much more common in this generation now, you know. So for me, it was a real, really hard to put him into childcare when we did, which I think was probably at about 14 months. Um, And I remember the first time I dropped him off and I walked out of the center and I cried all the way to the car park because I was like, this is the first time in my life where he's going to be with someone else. And I won't know what's happened. Like every minute of his life until now, I've been present and known. And it's probably that control aspect coming back in again. You know, I've known everything that's happened to him until now. And now he's going to be exposed to things or experience things. And I won't know what, what they are and how they affect him. So yeah, that first time walking away, leaving him with someone else, really tough. It's such a weird feeling, isn't it? Even just before we jumped on this Zoom, I had this really weird panic moment of, I hope Ray's okay at daycare. It's his third time going there. And yeah, I think it's that sense of control and not monitoring. And I'm like, of course he's okay. They would have called me if he wasn't. But I just started imagining like, you know, terrible accidents happening to him, which is pretty scary, I think, for new mums. So then Jackson was diagnosed with ASD level two when he was two years old. And that eventually elevated to more diagnosis at a higher level, I believe. Can you tell us a bit about that time in your life? Yeah, so he was two and a half around the time that he was diagnosed and he'd already been accessing speech therapy from about 18 or 19 months because he didn't have any language. So we kind of jumped on that early intervention framework pretty early. Um, But, you know, first child, right? So you don't know what's typical development and you don't know. And they're also different anyway and that's what everyone tells you. Yeah, and, you know, I didn't know anyone with an autistic child and my mum's group had like 13 women in it, so it was fairly decent size. And your friends will generally, when they don't understand or haven't got experience with something like that, they want to make you feel better. So there's a lot of, it's okay, he'll catch up, everyone's different, I'm sure it's normal. You know, there's a lot of... um trying to make you feel comfortable instead of being able to just be like, you know what, this is really hard. This is scary. This is challenging. This is uncertain. And that's just society in general as well. So it's very hard to be able to prepare yourself for a diagnosis when you don't know if it's coming or not. And so many of the mothers that I speak to feel this way because we were sitting with our pediatrician and he was saying to me, he's not autistic. And we were saying, okay, well, you're the expert. 
but then the next week we'd go to our speech therapist and she would say um you need to go back and I'll write you a letter and you take it back to the pediatrician so then you know the next time you're at the pediatrician he's saying oh well, maybe we should do some assessments and so it's just really hard to be dealing with different specialists and different doctors they're all telling you different things you don't know what's going to come out of it and you're trying to prepare yourself for something but you don't even know what you're preparing yourself for so it really uh, plays with your mind and how was it from the emotional point of view when you did receive the diagnosis after I guess quite a confusing time of not knowing what was going to come back yeah well again it's really tough because it's such a it's such a unique diagnosis that it means there's a different prognosis for every child and often the prognosis is completely inaccurate anyway, right? Because kids at two and three and four being diagnosed, there's no way of knowing what progress they'll make and what outcomes they will, they will, you know, will, will come from therapies and, and, and things that are available these days. So it's, it's sort of an exercise of taking on board all the information you're given but also not attaching to any particular part of it and knowing that anything's possible. You know, you're trying to prepare yourself for the worst, but you're trying to hope for the best. And it's a very tricky headspace to be in when you're already, you know, I already had another child by that stage. So Hunter was born when Jackson was, um, there's two years between them or just under two years between them. So I had uh, another baby who I was breastfeeding and up three times a night at the same time as going through this diagnosis process. So maybe all the sleep deprivation actually helped me to kind of numb out through it a little bit. Maybe it made it easier to cope with. That's really interesting. I guess you would have been quite distracted because you had a newborn. So maybe you weren't as fixated as if it was just the one baby at that one time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I it's, I don't remember a huge amount of Hunter's the first year of his life because we had so much going on with Jackson and a lot of stress. But also that first year of Hunter's life, I was on red alert for symptoms within Hunter. Like, is Hunter going to have these challenges, right? So, and, and I speak to so many mums who are in the same boat. It's like, I want to enjoy my child, but I'm hypervigilant looking for any mm. symptoms. That means he's going to need support as well. Wow. So how did you, so you then add Hunter to your family. How do you navigate the return to work as the mother of two and the mother of one child with special needs? Yeah, well, I actually was made redundant when I was on maternity leave with Hunter. Oh, so that was brutal. Awful. Yes. And just to add to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's ironic because six or eight months. So what happened is they sold the business to new owners and the new owners wanted to bring in all their own team. But then six or six months later, maybe longer, they contacted me and they said, actually, we want we we've realized we shouldn't have got rid of everyone and we'd like you to come and work. So I did go back and work for them on a contract basis. Um, and I would go up to the city and I would work two days and stay the night in between at the hotel and then come home. So I would get Hunter out of bed at four or five in the morning, give him a sleep, a dream feed, go up to the city, pump three times a day, pump overnight work another day and then come home. And yeah, so looking back, I'm like, wow, how did I do that? That's yeah. insane. And were there many, was there much therapy happening for Jackson at that time that's a part of your weekly schedule or does that not happen till they get a bit older? When does it, I guess, go up a, go up a yeah, notch? There was a little bit of therapy happening, um, but not how it is today with the NDIS. So there was mm. very limited funding available. 
um, in saying that therapy was a lot cheaper back then before the NDIS came along. <laughs> so, you know, he was probably doing speech therapy once a week or once a fortnight and we were seeing an OT. Um, that's probably the extent of it at that age. But it got to a point where we had to pull him out of childcare when he was about three and a half because he just wasn't, it wasn't a supportive enough environment for him, for his needs. And he couldn't move up to the kinder room because he was not toilet trained. And they only had, it was a very small center. So they only had one educator and eight kids in the kinder room. So they basically said, you know, we can keep him in the baby room, but he's a three and a half year old walking around with babies lying on the ground. And he doesn't have the vestibular input to be safe around little babies. Or, you know, we can't put him in the in the kinder room because we can't deal with the toilet training scenario. Mm. So we had to take him out of childcare because there was nothing available. And we investigated inclusion support for him at the kinder, at the childcare, but they basically fobbed us off and said, you know, he won't get it. It's not very likely he'll get it. It's not worth applying, you know, which <sighs> what knowing what I know now, it would have mm. been like, well, hey, we're going to try it. But back then I was like, oh, okay. You know, you just believe people when they tell you things like that. It's so hard advocating for yourself through something that you're so new to as well. So I can't even imagine how difficult navigating that time was. But this is a perfect segue to your business, The Autism Collective. Can you tell us a bit about the early days of starting it and what you've grown it to be today? Well, in the early days, it was just a community, really. And even before it was a community, it was just me, I suppose, sharing what we were going through. And it was more of an outlet for me to not feel so alone because I felt so alone in the process of what I was going through. So I would talk about what we were learning in terms of what is autism still to this day. I don't think really there is a definition for what autism even is. Um, it's not like you can you know, look at it on a, a scan of the brain and say, there it is. Um, so for me, it was just sharing what I was going through and chatting with other women who were going through a similar experience. And then it sort of started to grow and more and more people started to follow along with the information that I was sharing. And um, I just started to get a lot of people asking me questions. We were sort of doing out of the box therapies and ideas because Jackson's not a child that responds well to your mainstream type therapies and, and interventions. So we were looking at biomedical interventions and dietary change. Um, we were looking at looking at brain maturity and retained primitive reflexes and how they affect how the brain goes through the stages of maturation. Um, so there was lots of things that, that a lot of families had never heard of. So I get so many mm. questions saying, what's that? And how does that work? And how did you, how do you pay for that? And when our assistance dog came along, so many people were saying, how did you get an assistance dog? And where did you find him? And how did you fundraise for him? And um, I had created this huge spreadsheet to to fundraise for the dog because it was $25,000 for our dog. And oh, wow. so when we got him, then there was like another whole flood of questions. Tell me how to do it, you know? So I just sort of started to share more and more around um how we were making life work for us, basically not going down the mainstream route, I suppose. And there was a demand for that. And so um, eventually I started to run some group coaching programs and mentoring programs, which was really scary because I think no matter where you're at in the journey, you still have that imposter syndrome of like, who am I, you know, but it gets to a point where you can only help people for free for so long. Mm. And then it gets to a point where you're actually forsaking your own needs to help other people. And I had taken up a part-time job waitressing 
um, because it was the only role that I could find that I could work around my husband's shifts and around my kids' needs. So I was working in waitressing, but I was always looking at this, can this be a business that can support me and support our family so that I can devote my time to that instead of needing to go off and do other work, right? Because this is where my passion lies and this is what I want to spend my time on, but I can't do it forever unless it's going to actually pay some money for the bills. Yeah, so then I started offering some programs, group coaching, mentoring. I've done one-on-one support mentoring with mothers and um, my last program was it just finished up at the end of last year, which was a six month program called Regulated Motherhood, which was all around um, understanding like nervous system regulation and how much that affects how we can show up as mums. So that was just the most incredible experience to spend six months with this group of women and go through that whole process. It was incredible. We still have um, our chat group open that we speak in now. Um, and it's been really incredible to you know, motherhood is a journey of personal evolution. But I feel like when you have diagnosis is thrown into the mix with that, it just really ups the ante. It takes everything to the next level. And I sort of, I feel like um, the the universe, you know, doesn't want to give me half measures. Like, it's like, you're going to learn this lesson and you're going to learn it good. You know, so... um. I guess I try to embrace that. It's like, all right, I'm only here for one life, for one experience. Um, it is going to be full on and and I may as well embrace that as opposed to resist it. So, you know, I can go and get a job in a hotel doing marketing again, or I can like say, hey, what's really possible here to work in a, a role that, you know, feeds my passion and, and feeds my family. So that's the direction I've gone in. So how does work as a parent look today? How many days a week are you working? Is it quite fluid or is it quite regimented? How do you fit it all in? It's very fluid and I actually hope to keep it that way because I spent 10 years working in that masculine environment of force, force, drive, drive, keep up with the men, power suit, that whole world. And I have come to realise that that doesn't work for me especially once you're in motherhood. And so I'm really trying to embrace the feminine aspect now of allowing and and going with the flow, which is not something that comes naturally to me at all. Um, I've often said, you know, the biggest lesson that I received from Jackson is surrender. And my entire life has been, I can control this, you know, So to be in a scenario where it's like, do you know what? You're being asked to really surrender. And then when you think you've surrendered, you'll be asked to go the whole next level and the whole next level and so on for eternity, basically. I'm trying to resist becoming very regimented around my work, but it's still finding a balance because I work from home, right? And when my kids are here, there are times where I need to go in the bedroom and close the door and work, but my kids don't get that at all. They're like, no, mum's here. She's, she's mum, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm still, and maybe forever, will be trying to find that balance between structure and go with the flow. That's probably the entire lesson of my whole life. And so it just takes a lot of experimentation. And I started offering last year, or I put a new offering out around support with NDIS because I started getting a lot of questions around NDIS from people in my community. So I thought, I'll put this out there and see if it's something that's in demand and it's really taken off. So 
I've been really busy in the last six months focusing on that. And again, it's um it's kind of required a, a change to the structure of my business. So again, it's like, okay, do I want to rebrand or do I want to have a couple of different offerings that are quite different available? And what's that going to look like? And um, yeah, I've had to seek a lot more support in terms of business advice, mentoring accountants financial advice you know do I want to be a company do I want to be a sole trader all these things that to me are like that is not my zone I just want to pay someone to (laughs) take care of all that you know but I can't I need to be responsible for all of it so I'm trying to practice patience and remind myself that it will come it doesn't have to come in the next month it it's going to be a couple of years in the development probably so I've got a lot of, you know, really big dreams for where I want to take it, but I want it now. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. take that time. Yeah, you don't need to work till five o'clock. You can work till three and go and be with your kids. They're just mm-hmm. outside the door. And coming back to that imposter syndrome, I actually heard a really interesting point that you made on the St. Magella podcast interview that you're in about how it was hard to sort of charge out your worth or monetize your worth or put value to what you're offering out to the world how did that feel because it's a tricky one because you would have been quite vulnerable in that position once upon a time when you received your diagnosis and you do want to help these people but as you said you can't just keep doing it for free so how did you navigate that yeah it was a real challenge and I think it's something that I'm starting to overcome quite well now I guess seeing benefits for my clients And the feedback has really helped me to see how much value I can add to somebody's life. And yeah, at the time it was really challenging, but I've done quite a bit of work, I suppose, on my money stories and around understanding it's an aspect of self-care, right? So charging what you're worth is self-care. It's Mm. self-value and much the same as you can't give from an empty cup. It's the same when it comes to business. If I don't get paid enough to be able to pay the bills that I need to pay, then I need to go and get another job, right? And if I go and get another job, I don't have time to do the work that I'm doing now. Mm. And then you've got less time for your kids, less time for yourself, less time for your husband. Yeah. And not only that, but the more that I am well compensated for the work that I do, the better I can look after myself. And the better I can look after myself, the better I can support someone else. Mm. so when I'm earning well and when I'm in my vibrancy I can give incredible value to someone else right if I charge $500 and see two clients a day they will get incredible value as opposed to seeing 10 clients a day and charging $100 each that's such an interesting mindset and I think women particularly find it really hard to value ourselves and ask for what we want so I think that's a really really great way to put it And you mentioning self-care then is the perfect segue into my next question. I know that you really value self-care, not in a slap on a face mask and go into the other room for five minutes way, but in a really meaningful way. What does self-care look like for you and what are your tips around encouraging self-care? A huge part of self-care is actually boundaries, I've found. Not only knowing what you need them to be, what I need them to be for me, but being able to feel okay about enforcing them. And I speak with lots of mums who having half an hour in the backyard to read a book alone is enough for them. I'm like, that's nowhere near enough for me. (laughs) And like, awesome for you that that is. And there was lots of time where I felt so guilty about not 
wanting to be with my kids all the time, not needing to be with my kids all the time, needing time away from my kids. And I've discovered over the, the, the years that I am quite introverted. And because of that, I need time away where I don't have people talking to me, demanding things of me, asking me questions. I need to have my own space and my own time to myself because that is what helps me feel balanced and grounded. So it's very common to hear that, you know, if you take some time for yourself, you then are, you come back in a better state to be able to mother your children in a, you know, a healthier, more grounded way. But for me, it's more than that. It's about really understanding what my needs are and being able to, first of all, communicate them to the people around me, because that in itself is hard. But it comes down to what what are your relationships like? You know, what is your relationship with your partner? Can you say to your partner, I want to go and have this day to go to this event by myself? Is that okay? And is your partner going to be able to communicate in a healthy way back to you? Yes, I'm comfortable with that. No, I'm not comfortable with that. Because I texted my husband yesterday and I said to him, can you take this day off work? Because I want to go to this concert. Now, the reason I can do that is because I trust him if it's not okay to say no. If if, if I thought he's going to do some passive aggressive, oh, yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> and, and, you know, and this happens in many, many relationships. I wouldn't actually ask him in the first place. So him having a boundary in place about what he's comfortable with gives me permission to ask for things for myself. Mm, that's a really interesting outlook. If we don't have that communication between ourselves, if I don't trust him to say no when he needs to, then I'll stop asking and then neither of us get our needs met. Mm. So it's about feeling safe enough to ask for what you need and knowing that you can ask and you're the person you're asking, like let's say you're asking mum to look after the kids for a few hours, her boundaries in place. Can she say no when she needs to say no? Because what happens is if if we overgive, it just turns into resentment in the end. So if I'm asking mum to look after the kids and she doesn't want to, but she's like, okay, then in the end, she's going to resent me for that. Mm, and there's I don't a that. theme in terms of how you identified that you needed to charge what you're worth so that you could give the right amount of yourself to your clients. It's almost another form of that. It's valuing your time that you need time away to then be able to come back and give the best to your family and to yourself. And a huge part of it, well, my clients tell me, is getting over the guilt side of it. You know, I only have two children, but there are plenty of families that have four and six children out there and, and many children on a, you know, on the spectrum with another diagnosis. So a huge part of the puzzle for mothers is getting over that guilt aspect, the guilt of having time away from their family, the guilt of investing financially in themselves. And the one area where we stop spending money first as mums is generally on ourselves We'll buy anything our kids need and they'll have mm. the, the right basketball boots or whatever, but we won't spend money on ourselves even when the return on that investment is so much greater than a pair of basketball boots for our kid. So that's a piece of the puzzle that we all have to learn for ourselves about it comes back to do we think we're worthy of investing in ourselves? You're very wise. I think you've been here before. That was so beautifully <laughs> put. What is the greatest challenge being a working parent of a child with special needs? And what are your tips for parents that might be in the earlier stages of navigating that and what that looks like trying to manage working, looking after a special needs child and perhaps your other children? Mm, that's really tough because every child is so different, right? Many 
mothers that I speak to are not able to work because of their child's needs. Mm -hmm. And that can be because their child cannot attend a mainstream childcare or kinder, cannot attend a mainstream school. There are a lot of children on the spectrum who are homeschooled because it's safer for their mental health than it is for them to be in the school system. You know, so there's a, we as a society have a lot of work to do around education for children who don't fit into the specialist school system or the mainstream school system. There's a huge number of children that fall into that gap and there is nothing suitable and safe and neuroaffirming for them. So that's the first piece of the puzzle, right? It's like, do does my child want to be at home or do they want to be in a schooling environment? Mm. Because if they want to be at home and we want to homeschool, that's great, right? Set up your lifestyle so it works for you. But there's a lot of families who are homeschooling, not by choice, but because there's not something that's suitable for their child. Mm. That's really interesting. I imagine as well, a lot of kids with special needs would fall into that in-between category where they're neither here nor there. Yeah. And there are requirements around specialist schooling. You have to have an IQ that sits at a particular level. So you don't get a choice a lot of the time if you need to, if you want to go to a specialist school and you can't, um, you're left with nothing but the mainstream schooling system. And, you know, there's independent and, and Catholic schools in that, in that mix. But again, the type of learning environment that a neurodiverse child needs doesn't fit into the boxes mm. that exist in the school system, really. So, yeah, I speak with a lot of mothers who've had to give up their work. And that's really tough because even financially it's challenging, but even more than that, for their own mental health, to give up something that was really important to them is really hard. And we don't want to end up in a situation where we're resenting our children because of the sacrifices that we've had to make. So there are so many mums who are doing really exciting things like what I'm doing to create a way of making an income that is flexible enough for our children's needs but also how can you not love working in a in in a a world like this where you get to help people and you get paid to do it I mean there's no there's no downside Mm -hmm. to that right so I would encourage more women to be brave enough to look at what's possible especially you know since COVID there there's so much scope to work online I was just on with a client who's in a different state right there's not a lot of overheads to work in a in my type of business and the the hardest part is getting over that imposter syndrome and like what do I have to offer and also you know for me the a lot of it was like I'm not an IT you know, nerd, I don't know how to set up all the systems. And, you know, you've got all that sort of logistical stuff, but most of the time the hardest part is like, can I do this? And do I dare to do this? And what are the school mums going to think about me? And all of that stuff. So if you can find a way to be able to work on your terms, it really can be life-changing because you're not beholden to that system that doesn't flex for what you need. And so for those who aren't very familiar with autism, can you explain what a day in the life is like with Jackson or how you communicate with them or how that works? Yeah, so Jackson has a, he originally was diagnosed with a level two diagnosis. So there's a level one, level two, level three. Um, Level one is requiring a small amount of support 
level two is requiring a higher level of support and level three is requiring significant support. So the way that we speak about these diagnoses has changed a lot in the last sort of four or five years. Um, it used to be like a deficit-based model or an impairment-based description, whereas now we talk about what is someone's support needs levels. So he has a level three diagnosis now, which is for significant needs. He um, He's nine and a half and he's nonverbal. Um, he did start to get some language when he was about two, but he had a regression around age three and he lost his language and a lot of his play skills. So for us, it's been... It, it's such a it, it's a time of like wait and see you know what what will come back from that regression what will he recover what will stay the same and so he has very high level needs in terms of just his own personal safety when you can't communicate you can't tell someone if you've hurt yourself for example mm. so there's been three times in the past the past year where he's been hurt at school to a point where he's needed to go to hospital oh wow uh in the last week of to the term last year, he got stung on the lip by a bee, but he couldn't tell anyone. So his face swelled up and school was like, oh, quick ring mm. mum. They don't know why. He can't tell anyone if it hurts or, you know. Mm. So he's very vulnerable because if he has a sore toe, he can't tell me, right? If the bath water is too hot, he can't tell me. We have to decipher everything from his behavior. And behavior is communication at every level for every human, but even more so for him because it's the only way mm. that he can show us what his needs are. And we are super blessed because he is a very chilled out kid. He's very placid. He's very easygoing. So I'm so grateful for that because part of the characteristics of autism can be that a child really needs routine and sameness and can be quite rigid um, but he doesn't have that behavior so that I think makes life much easier for him and therefore for us but he needs support in terms of getting dressed eating his breakfast he uses a communication device which we are trying to help him to learn we do a lot of modeling of it but it's basically a screen where he can press buttons to make requests and hopefully eventually communicate full full sentences with us um, his assistant's dog but we got him to access the community because jackson from very early on was a runner <laughs> take him out and he's gone <laughs> so um it started to get really challenging to leave the house for when he was four years old he was still strapped into a pram because if he got out of that pram he'd be off running down he's the escalator gone. or across the road you know he doesn't have any awareness of personal safety so um orbit is trained jackson wears a little belt it's called tethering and um jackson jackson's little belt is attached to orbit's service dog coat and if Jackson tries to run away, Orbit is trained to anchor himself down flat to the ground. And he's a big Labrador. So he That's incredible. can't go. The amazing thing was, though, that once we started to work with Orbit, Jackson never, ever tried to run away. And the trainer said to me, animals and children have something very mystical going on. But a child would often much rather be told what to do by an animal than a child. 
And we used to always have people saying to me, oh, they're so cute. Are they best friends? Do they cuddle all night? And I'm like, no, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I know you want that picture. I know. No, it just yeah. stops him from running away from us. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we got approached by the newspaper and they said, oh, I would like to do a story. And I said, if you want photographs of a cute kid cuddling a cute dog and happy days, you're not going to get it because that's not what Orbit's role is. Orbit's job is to be a protector for Jackson. And he is, you know, like another person of authority saying what he can and cannot do, really. But from the day that Orbit came to live with us, we never used the pram again. Wow, that is incredible. I kept it in the shed for, I don't know, a year or so as a safety blanket, <laughs> but we never needed it again. And, you know, um, Jackson just could learn to walk everywhere with us. He can go anywhere because Orbit can go anywhere. So, it was a total life changer. That is incredible. Um, I have two more questions for you before we wrap up. If you could improve one thing for families in Australia navigating NDIS or and just children with special needs navigating that life more broadly, what would it be? In terms of the NDIS, I would say anyone who has any contact with families or even anyone who, who has, you know, at arm's length, arm's length contact with families, ideally should have some sort of lived experience. Because until you have lived it, how can you tell somebody what their support needs are? Or unless mm. you have some kind of exposure to it. Um, because a lot of the families that I work with now, you know, I had a mum say to me, I spoke to my person, my contact person about getting some support from me as my child's mother. And they just looked at me like I had two heads. Like, why would you need support? Yeah, why would oh. you need support? It's your child. There's instances of like that that occur all the time. So I mm. just feel like if the people who are providing these services had some form of lived experience, they would be able to come from a trauma-informed, empathetic approach as opposed to a punitive, you're lucky for whatever you get approach, which is what a lot of my clients experience. Wow, lucky they have you advocating in their corner. And if you could solve one problem for working parents in Australia today, what would it be? Well, I read something really interesting um, that said the 40-hour work week was designed for families that had one parent working and one parent at home, right? Yes. That makes sense. So where did we get this idea in 2023 that if mum that mum should work 40 hours and dad should work 40 hours or, you know, it's like anything less is sort of inferior and not really keeping up with what you should be doing. Yeah, that's so true. And I thought maybe dad should work 20 hours and mum can work 20 hours or, or how can we look at that 40 hours of what somebody should be working or is expected to be working and realistically say, why are we trying to double that? It's so interesting when you put it that way too. And like workflows have improved. We're able to have this Zoom conversation online instead of meeting and taking up more of our time. So if everything's becoming more efficient, why are we still working these 40-hour weeks? That is such a good point. Yeah. I just it like, just let's get rid of that 40-hour number altogether. I could never work a 40-hour week. I, well, put it this way. I could, but I'd be miserable mm. and I'd, be thinking why am I doing this well that's the Mm. first thing I would need to ask myself right like what makes me think I need to be working 30 hours or 40 hours a week if it's a financial issue then that's obviously something to consider right do I need this big house do I need this new car I don't know but if it's not a financial issue what is it what makes me think I need to work that number of hours 
Yeah, that's a great thing to contemplate. And I think we definitely come into that self-inquiry space when we become parents and perhaps even more so living through an experience like you have. It's been so great to hear of your experience and learn more about autism and the work you're doing. Where can people find you online? So I'm on Facebook, although I don't really spend much time on Facebook, but I am there. Um, If you search The Autism Collective, you'll find me. And I'm also on Instagram, which is the autism underscore collective. And my NDIS work, I have become known as the NDIS fairy. So you can Google that and you'll find me. Um, And I'm at theautismcollective.com.au. All my links are in there too. So you're very welcome to come and say hi. I love having chats with, you know, mums who are like me, um, learning from mums like me and helping people who feel how I did six or seven years ago. I guess to know it's not always going to be this way, it's not always going to be this hard um, and that you're never alone. The work you're doing is amazing. So thank you very much for what you're doing, but also for your time today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.